Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm joined today by Dr. Mara Simon, who is an assistant professor at Springfield College, the cradle of physical education. Uh, she published a 2020 article we're discussing today titled The Emotionality of Whiteness in Physical Education, Teacher Education. Uh, it was published in Quest. I'll put the link to the paper in the show notes. Uh, so, Mara, thanks for coming on. Hi, Risto. Thanks for having me here. To, you know, anyone who's out there listening. So, um, and this is your second time on podcast, so thanks for returning. Um, and I want to acknowledge that this paper was developed uh, from an award and a lecture at the 2020 National Association for Kinesiology and Higher Education. So, Nakahi, they just uh, they usually have their conference in the middle of January in somewhere warm. Um, and this was the Halle Beth. Poindexter Young Scholar addressed. So first, congrats on the award. And second question, uh, did you give this as a lecture? Like, is the paper written as a lecture? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, I gave a lecture. It was a version of the this full paper, but pretty close to it. So it was, it was a bit nerve-wracking because it was like the only scheduled event for the whole conference. Um, and it was, you know, more than an hour. And it's a bit of a delicate topic to be talking about, right, as a white woman. But I think it was really well received. Like the audience asked engaged questions after my presentation. And I felt like the dialogue was really productive and reflective. And I wanted to like share that because I think it's really important to acknowledge um, that it illustrates this, this point that, you know, in this predominantly white crowd, which, you know, most of the audiences in our field are going to be predominantly white. Like mm -hmm. there is this genuine desire to do better, but like the audience members maybe can't always conceptualize of how or what this idea means or looks like. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's also like really easy and, and probably common for white people to feel defensive when they're confronted with the realities of systemic racism, like which I sort of did in my paper. And I think that like because I am white and because in the presentation I really laid out my own mistakes and my lived realities from those mistakes, it made the content a bit more accessible and that then led the audience to feel a little more comfortable and we were able to like have a really good dialogue. Yeah, and I know that that came out in some of the peak collaborative conversations we had in the summer of 2020 where, you know, a lot of peak professors were like you said, they really want to do the good work. Um, and and so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, diving in on this article, but I, I would like to embarrass you just a little bit because you are one of the few people that I know that has hit, hit, hit the triple crown of PE Young Scholars. So you got the Nakahee Young Scholar Award, the ICEP Young Scholar Award, the SHAPE Young Scholar Award, and <laughs> the AERA Larry Locke Award as a grad student for our, uh, for our SIG. So I'd like to just acknowledge that I'm talking to uh, a kind of a big deal around here. So congrats oh on <laughs> a, a glorious start to your career. Thanks. I think it's probably all downhill from here. <laughs> hey, at least you saw what the world looks like from the peak. And, you know, well, downhill skiing you. is super fun, too. It so is super fun. Yes. It's just and about it, the ride. I have, I have been very, like, grateful and humbled and appreciative that people, you know, find value in the work. So thank you for bringing that up. I, it's, you know, it's definitely embarrassing to 
have listed out like that. Well, it's it's not supposed to be embarrassing, and you do good work. I use your articles in our uh, in our grad class, and we uh, we do the other podcast that you uh, came on is as one of the reading or one of the listenings for Absolutely. my social cultural class. So um, cool, it's good stuff. So. Um, yeah. In the article that we're talking about today, you you start off by talking about whiteness and how historically uh, PE teacher education programs by design promote these white norms and experiences while at the same time, quote, othering students' uh, cultural knowledge. So can you explain the idea of whiteness uh, for the listeners and talk about this notion of white norms and Pete? Yeah. So the thing about whiteness is that it is essentially like almost ubiquitous, invisible, or as synonymous with normal, which is then how it maintains its power. So, right, if we can't see it or identify it, then we can't subsequently name it and address the problems that it causes. So it's important to distinguish that when we talk about whiteness, we are not talking about an individual's like lack of a racial identity, right? White being white. Instead, whiteness should be thought of as a system. It's a system that subtly yet effectively embodies white supremacy. Now, white supremacy is a hard and loaded term for many of us to hear. I think it really evokes um, overt and horrific forms of racism, mm -hmm. like the KKK or modern day equivalents, you know, the Proud Boys and the like. So. This is an emotive term or idea, white supremacy. Um, way of understanding the world, which very subtly but effectively informs how we make sense of things. So in Pete, for example, right, whiteness is embodied when white Pete students and professors, they assume that their experiences in school, in PE, and in their PE programs, these they all hold true across racial lines and identities. Whereas the reality is that pre-service PE teachers of color, they often have very different and very racialized experiences within their predominantly white institutions and PE programs. So for example, um, when we think about PE programs, expectations around clothing and hairstyle. What does it mean to look professional when you show up for student teaching, right? What does this idea of professionalism might vary? The, uh, norms and values around body language, such as eye contact, tone of voice, teaching and communication practices, um, as well as content. So what sports or physical activities are being included in PE program content? And what are the assumptions underpinning the decisions to either include or exclude specific forms of content? Right. Yeah. And, and there's a there's a lot there for sure. And, and I know that, you know, other other podcasts have talked about this of, you know, what are the sports that you're teaching? What are the activities that you're teaching and preparing to teach? And then, you know, if your if your student goes into a you know, very urban school district or that values certain types of activities or certain types of just behavior. Um, but it, it makes sense. And it, I would say that this didn't make sense to me before I got into uh, at teacher's college with you and started teaching yeah. at Cal State Fullerton and realizing that sometimes the classes that we teach and the sports that we teach and the activities that we teach 
don't necessarily translate to every single school that's that students are going to take their first first jobs at. So you're kind of having to reassess that in a PEAT program for sure. Totally. And sometimes it's not even about the like activity or sport itself, but it's the approach. So for example, you know, I work in Springfield and we bring students, our student teachers into very diverse, you know, Springfield is, I think 80% Latina and then almost, you know, another 15% black in the city. And so the schools are extremely diverse. Right. And, and the student was a student was student teaching lacrosse and one of their, you know, high school students is like, why are we learning this white person's sport? Hmm. And that student was like, ah, which and so it's not to say that like students of color shouldn't learn lacrosse. Like they, they should, of course they should. Lacrosse is a great sport, but maybe if we approach lacrosse using the history of native indigenous connections to the sport, explaining how it has been co-opted. Like if we took a social justice approach to lacrosse and used it to help empower disenfranchised, like racially minoritized student groups, they might be able to then form a connection where it would make sense and they'd be interested in it rather than simply having like a white student teacher come down and teach like right throwing and cradling in lacrosse without any context for it. Yeah. Leave it up to a new Englander to bring a lacrosse example. That's really good though. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I get that. And I think that, you know, you could, you could say the same thing of why are you teaching lacrosse in Harlem? But one of the great after-school programs is Harlem lacrosse that works with a lot of a lot of youth in that community and it's meaningful for them it's that they enjoy it but you're right like the way that it's presented is is really important so yeah it matters definitely so in this study you used three different theoretical frameworks to essentially better understand experiences and identities of black and latinx pre-service pe teachers um, who are enrolled in predominantly white PEAT program. And so you tried to use these theories to unpack how race plays a formal role in education and specifically within PEAT. So can you talk a little bit about each theory and then maybe talk about how they work together for the study? Yes, definitely. Um, I should note that, you know, each of these theories is highly complex and we could probably spend, you know, an entire podcast episode on each one separately. So I'm just going to focus on the major points that I used from mm-hmm. each theory for this paper. So I started with critical race theory, right, for this um, article. There's four main ideas that I was able to um, utilize when I was understanding the data and writing the results. Uh, and the first, the first like sort of core assumption or underpinning of critical race theory is that racism is inextricably embedded in U.S. social structure. So that then maintains like this racialized hierarchy within social systems such as schools. So from this idea of racism as embedded and leading to racialized hierarchy, it, it sort of makes sense to argue for the need to challenge majoritarian stories that are widely accepted as true. This is referring to discourse, right? These things that stories that are just sort of circulated and accepted as true without ever really um, like challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this happens, you know, often these, this discourse, these stories, majoritarian stories, like they actually only reflect that of the dominant group. And in this case, that's like white people because we're talking about race. 
So uh, a third key point then of critical race theory is working towards racial justice and social change, meaning that this research from start to finish approached the topic with the idea that there is much work to be done towards racial equity and maybe hopefully that this research could help with that work. Like that was, you know, sort of informed everything that I did with the research. And then finally, I think this is probably the most important point that I utilize is that um, critical race theory presents the stories and experiences of people of color as valid, as deeply important and desperately needing to be shared heard, respected, and valued. So in essence, you know, we're trying to highlight the experiences, stories, voices of people of color who have always had a voice and always had stories to share, but those stories are often ignored, overlooked, or disavowed. Yeah, and you definitely get into that um, in the in the paper. What about um, critical whiteness studies? Yeah, so, okay, critical race theory emerged in the late 70s as, um, you know, part of like sort of an extension of critical legal studies. And so that's been around now, we're looking at 40, 50 years. Um, but it focuses primarily, as it should, on like racial identity and the experiences of people of color, historically, you know, racially minoritized identities. It became a logical evolution in scholarly work to then start to be like, well, what about whiteness? Like, I think that probably needs to be interrogated, you know, in my case, particularly as it has, say, been constructed in education. So critical whiteness studies takes up the position that the experiences of white people are unmarked by race. They're raceless. We have like racialized groups and then we have raceless white people. And that this functions to like other in schools, teacher as, and students of color. So this theory I find is particularly useful to disrupt white emotionality. Take for example, the current backlash against critical race theory in schools. We've heard a lot about that in say the last year or two. Um, backlash, you know, so intense and so strong that laws are being passed against teaching it. So if we were to use critical whiteness studies to examine this phenomenon, um, we like critical whiteness studies might ask us to to try and identify why white people are so fervently disturbed by the ideas of critical race theory and to identify how whiteness functions in blinding white people to racism. So it's essentially the counterpart to critical race theory that links, uh, you know, whiteness and race in sort of, I guess, hierarchical or uh, problematic terms. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's sort of the main ideas of, of critical whiteness studies that I used in the paper. And then your last one or the third one is emotionality. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yes. So it became really clear um, that like emotions were going to be a big part of this work. And so in order to analyze my own white emotions, you know, in conjunction with the experiences and emotions of the pre-service PE teachers of color, I focused on Dr. Sarah Ahmed's theoretical discussion of emotionality in, in a couple of different ways. So first, I wanted to establish that emotions have an important role in our each of our daily lived experiences and that this needs to be acknowledged within research as such. Like emotions are there. There is no emotionless way to live and there is no emotionless way to do research. 
Um, Ahmed also argues that emotions are both contextual and cultural. That is like how I feel in a specific situation as a white woman might be very different from the feelings in that same situation as, you know, say a black woman. And that these differences in feelings often come loaded with assumptions, stereotypes, and value. So there are different values that are assigned to race-based emotions. And then finally, I focus on the idea of emotions as performative or consciously publicly displayed in response you know, to, in this case, like acts of racism. So it's the performativity, that performance of emotion that allows white folks to, you know, perform dismay or horror at racism, like, oh my God, that's so awful, but then never actually take substantive action to make change. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that came, you know, were useful in writing this paper from emotionality. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important as we're going into the results that we first acknowledge and kind of better understand the participants who were, again, a really big part of this, uh, of the study. So can you give us an overview of the participants and their backgrounds and kind of like their stories? Yeah, definitely. It's one of the, the best parts of the whole study is the participants. So I had 10, all of Black and Latine heritage. Um, they ranged in ages from 19 to 27. Out of the 10, we had three women and seven men. Uh, all but one were undergraduates. So I did have one master's, but they were all 10. All of them were in programs earning their initial teacher licensure. So none of them were doing like an advanced pedagogy or like master's program like that after ach achieving initial certification. It was all sort of entering the profession. Um, and these 10 participants were enrolled in three different predominantly white programs in the Northeast. They, you know, as I said, represented mostly black and Latina ethnicities, but I did have one who had one parent from India, one who had one white parent, and one who was black, but also had native or indigenous ancestry. Uh, family heritage or origin countries included Jamaica, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Ethiopia, Puerto Rico, and Uganda. And several were black American, you know, tracing their family lineage multiple generations back in the U.S. And uh, while not all encompassing, most were first generation students whose, you know, families had moved to the U.S. in search of that fabled better life and immigrant narrative of upward mobility and financial stability. Um, and there was a noticeable lack of intergenerational family wealth present in the backdrop of many of their stories, not all, but the vast majority. So you collected data through interviews and visual data. Can you kind of explain the process that you went through and the type of visual data that you collected? Yes, the visual was so important for this study. So each of the three of the 10, sorry, each of the 10 participants completed three like one-on-one -on -one inter interviews with me. They were spaced out, you know, every two or three months. So it took me about a full academic year to complete the interviews because, you know, I'm at a teaching institution. So mm -hmm. we got to teach that 4-4 load on top of everything. Um, so, you know, I piloted the interview guide with a, a, particip a student who met criteria. And then that first round of interviews, like, had a fairly set series of questions, about 10 to 15, which gave me insight into into their lives, their backgrounds, their families, 
you know, and how they came to enroll in a PE program at their predominantly white institution. Then for the second interview, now that one was a bit more flexible. And I asked them to reflect um, a little bit more on the ways in which race played a role in their experience at their institution. Um, And also, like, let me ask some more uh, specific questions to each participant that was trying to draw out some of the themes I felt like were emerging from the first round. During the second interview, I used the technique of photo elicitation. And this is via participant-generated images, where each participant was asked to bring any visual representations of themselves, you know, either as PE teachers in the PE programs or just of of who they were, of their lives, their families, their friends, whatever they wanted to share and and discuss. And so the images, I mean, it was a huge range of images. They ended up with, like, um, you know, well over 100 images that people had brought in and some of them were, you know, they took pictures of things, things in their life that were important to them, right? Like a Bible or, um, you know, a sports jersey or a whatever, some a tangible item that they didn't want to necessarily bring to the interview. They took a picture of it. Sometimes it was like old photos of themselves as children, like young children. And, and then sometimes it was like current images, you know, either say high school or at their college. Um, just this really all-encompassing collective narrative about their identities so the images there was a lot of them and they were really varied um and then and finally then after that that second interview there was a third interview closing interview followed up on emerging themes you know had a chance to dig a little deeper with the harder questions some of which they kind of skirted around in the first Mm -hmm. two interviews Mm -hmm. and then make sure that, you know, my interpretation of what was going on in their stories matched what they wanted to convey. So I'm going to take this on a tangent real quick. You said you had like over a hundred images and it was, it's interesting because you and I participated as, as doc students on a project with Laura Azarito about visual Mm -hmm. methods, right. And use visual methods and, you know, we were in a position when we like were giving them digital cameras and tracking the <laughs> digital cameras around and saying, please use this digital camera to take these photos. And from where we did that to, okay, a lot of them had phones, but they weren't allowed to bring them to school on certain days and all that stuff. But, you know, we were doing it through digital cameras. So I'm wondering if you can talk to, because you've been exposed to visual methods research since like 2012, 2013. 2012, yeah. So like we're looking at 10 years and in those 10 years, social media has exploded. And I'm assuming, yeah. I'm making the assumption here that most of those student uh, pre-service teachers took photos with their like phone yeah. and then showed them. So has visual methods just like exploded or like because so I many think... people have more access to it or? Yeah, I mean, I should note that when you and I started that project as doctoral students, I still had a flip phone. <laughs> like, no part of my phone took pictures. Yeah. And I think that was the case because I remember that students were actually quite still excited by the idea of the digital camera. Yes. Like, they thought they got to keep them for real, which yeah. then, you know, you felt bad when you said no. So, right, 10 years later, like, everybody has a smartphone. Like, people have essentially access to a camera wherever they go. And so I do think it's made in a lot of ways, 
like digital research methods, visual methods through the digital, like so much more accessible and so much more doable. It's almost, it's like, it's like, why would you not, right? If you're going to do interviews, like, hey, show me some pictures on your, like on your phone of things that are important to you or past things that are going on. Like it's so much easier. And you're right that social media plays a huge part of that because people are taking pictures to post on social media. They're creating identities on their social media. I mean, people are making a living off of social media. And I don't think that was happening 10 years ago when, when we, when we did this project. So yeah. Even think about the the cost, like Laura had to get with 60, 70 uh, students in the study and we have to give them, you know, digital cameras. So you had to purchase those and the SD cards and all those. And now there's no upfront cost. I mean, huge like IRB process to be able to use photos. And especially when you're working with underage students, you you were working with pre-service teachers. So it's a little different, but like the cost of and the access to these, these photos is just totally different. Yeah, but and you don't have to, you know, remember, like, I remember worrying about, like, the cameras breaking or, like, mm-hmm. losing the SD cards. Um, and so it's, it's you know, students can, like, sometimes they've, like, you know, sent me the photos in different ways where it's just been easier to get them. Yeah. Um, so it, the, the, the advancements in technology towards, like, digital, visual, just living, I yeah. think, right, has really made a big impact on the potential to enact visual methods. It's yeah. funny that you bring that up because I'm like writing a chapter, you know, in a, in a qualitative or a research methods book in the field. So if, if listeners are interested in more about this, you can read that chapter when the book comes out. Yeah. And I mean, just this idea of like unformatted, like you put in an SD card into your computer and it says disc not formatted. You're like, what does that no! mean? <laughs> Where did the photos go? And like, can who knows the format of this SD card? Like, yeah. yeah. Now it's yeah. just like, hey, is your phone open? Let me airdrop this photo to you. You're like, Thanks. Totally. Or text it. Appreciate you know, it. Yeah. So easy to get the photos. And, so. the, and they just, they take photos all the time, right? They're just like always. So it feel, it's like a very sort of natural yes. um, yeah. request, right? Of people of a certain generation, if you're doing students. Like, and to be like, and oh, I would just, think that they also yeah. have... Uh, a lot more posed and planned photos in visual methods because like I could take a burst of 25 photos and go through and take the best one that I like instead Mm -hmm. of you know old school like print photos you took a photo and then like a week later you realize oh my eyes were closed, you know? Totally, totally, so. yeah. Oh, my God, film. I mean, I think when Laura started this work, she was still doing film camera. Like, it was, like, disposable cameras. So what a huge, like... Oh, yeah, I, I coded that folder. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a lot of stuff to code. Yeah. So. so a huge, 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 huge advances in, yeah. um, in re- visual research, absolutely. Well, I would say that was an enjoyable tangent, at least for me. Totally. So thanks for take, taking the trip. Let's get back to this study. Um, and so you work with these participants to understand two things. First, how does whiteness impact Black and Latinx pre-service PE teachers 
at predominantly white institutions of higher education? Um, and second, what's the role of emotionality for you as a white researcher engaged in research informed by notions of social, notions of social justice? So let's talk about the pre-service teachers first. What did you find there? I, I found that participants were like really initially unemotional about the consistent racism that they experienced. It was essentially a part of the fabric of their experiences at their predominantly white institutions, so much so that it almost it almost became like a backdrop hum. They essentially eventually got so accustomed to it that they not only became numb, but they even stopped noticing it after a while. So it wasn't until they sat down, say with me in the interview and, and reflected and added up the incidents that the weight of you know, what existing as a racialized identity in white spaces really meant for them emotionally. I mean, the stories of overt racism were, were truly upsetting, from people yelling things out of car windows to white students making stereotypical assumptions, you know, like the black male students were often assumed to be athletes or they were a rapper or ghetto or thug. Um, and then there was even more instances of subtle or covert racism you know, often hidden behind well-meaning intentions and, and where the participant would be left wondering about the encounter, trying to figure out if that was actually racist or not. Um, you know, spoiler alert, it almost always was. And so it's like these subtle examples that left participants feeling really like there was really nothing they could do about any of this and that this was just the way the world was. And so they needed to deal with it as best they could. And that was usually by ignoring it altogether, including their own pain. Mm -hmm. that's, that's so sad to hear, you know what I mean? Yeah, like... it was. It was really hard. And it's that's where sort of the second half of the paper is how I dealt with hearing that, yeah. right? It was not, they were hard things to hear. And, I, and I'm wondering what percentage of faculty who have these students in their classes know anything about these stories. You know, did, right. did that ever come up in, in your conversations with the pre-service teachers? Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about white faculty. And, you know, there were some that students felt positively towards, but there was the general consensus was that, like, white faculty had no clue what mm. it was like for them. And I think, you know, I, it, I am a perfect example of that, right? Like, it was such a hard process for me to wrap my head around these really horrifying things that they were experiencing and then I had this very strong emotional response and like it's important for people to know that you know at the time of these interviews I had spent at least eight years studying racism and, and critical race theory and education like I was I am I was woke whatever that means and I saw myself as this very vocal white ally or accomplice and I was still having this pretty intense you know if you listen to the interviews like I, um, it was almost performative in a way, uh, you know, at, even as well-intentioned as my responses were, like, it became about establishing myself to the participant as a white ally, um, and in some ways, like, centering, like, my own whiteness with regards to how I felt when I was confronted with these stories of racism. Mm. Like, I knew, I knew racism existed, I know it exists. But since I'm white, I don't really experience it firsthand in the way that they did. And so 
to hear participants tell such ugly stories so offhandedly, it really unnerved me. And I responded as such, right? Like <gasps> loud gas, like big gestures, like emphatic denunciations, you know, just like these sort of like performative emotional responses because I needed to make sure participants knew that like, I'm not like them. Um, hmm. And, and, you know, maybe some of the participants appreciated these, these emotional responses. Um, but as I, I analyzed the data, I realized that this in a way was really demonstrating my own embodied whiteness. It's like my discomfort hmm. in that moment became centered when I really should have been focusing on participants' emotions. And so there was a real disconnect there around what I know about, um, you know, how to respond or, or what's going on for students of color versus how I reacted. So did this change throughout, like, because you said you did three yep. sequential interviews. So I'm sure that the yeah. first one or the, the first one to the second one, the second one you asked about these issues and then you had a chance to come back and interview them for a third time. So was that different then at the third time? Like were you, had you already gone through this kind of emotionality analysis of yourself? Yeah, I think that there was a real evolution um, in, you know, when I, if I looked at the set of first interviews to almost a year later for most of them, you know, or say eight, nine, 10 months later for the third set, um, there is an, first of all, that collective narrative of racism was so clearly embedded that it, it wasn't a shock, right? So then mm -hmm. by the third interview, we're talking and I'm like, yep, 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 yep. But I had also caught myself, I had read the transcripts, I had been like, whoa, why am I like, you know, sometimes in response, I'd be like, what? Like, why do people think that's okay? And mm. it's like, even though it's meant to be rhetorical, it does in essence sort of question or sort of undermine what the student's saying. So things like that, I was able to be like, yeah, why don't I just respond with a more sort of like a, a quieter, like, I'm so sorry. Wow. That's horrible. Like, uh, really trying to keep the focus on the participants or that must have been horrible for you. That must have been hard for you. Or how did that make you feel? Right. Like just trying to, again, take myself out because it's not about what I was feeling. It's about what was going on for them. Has that changed you as a, as an educator, as a Pete educator, the study? I mean, yeah, it's there. I think that it really opened my eyes to some of the barriers that, students of color in particular face that I hadn't necessarily quite grasped. Um, you know, some things are tangible and concrete. You know, for example, we had a uniform requirement that students had to buy. And like several of the participants were like, yeah, that's a bit of a financial burden. And like hmm. our families are working class. And so it's just assumed that we can afford this, you know, hundred dollar uniform. And we've actually since changed that it's now included as part of like, I don't know, some fee that where it doesn't break, break it down as to uniform specific, but right. things like that. Uh, you know, the state licensure testing exams are very stringent in Massachusetts. And we had, I had a lot of the participants struggled to pass them. And so when I was thinking about what content was included in these tests, it became really obvious how uh, culturally irrelevant much of the content was um, to things like, you know, if they are feeling like outsiders in the class, what can I do in my classes 
to cultivate community, to prioritize their knowledge, their experiences, you know, raise them up and make them centered in the class in as part of the, the learning environment rather than, you know, pushing them out or making them feel like an outsider. Yeah. So it totally changed things for me. And I mean, some of this I knew, but it's like when you hear it in real life and it's going on in programs that you sort of know and are familiar with, it's, it's hard to, it's still hard to reconcile. Yeah. And, and honestly, like you can have office hours and you can keep your door open for students to come in, but very rarely do you have these conversations that are this in depth over that much of a time, unless you're really making an effort to reach out to those students because students are, won't like I don't I don't know like I wouldn't think that a student who's dealing with racism from one faculty member will feel comfortable going into the office of another like white faculty member just to kind of talk over the year about how they experience injustice in the P program so like how would you ever get to this and you like are you know I'm, I'm assuming that these students were from different universities right yeah. So I just, like you are you're not controlling their grade or you're not controlling no. their graduation. So they feel a lot more comfortable talking to you because they signed an informed consent and they know that this yeah. is going to be a pseudonym and stuff. So yeah. it's really interesting. There is. And I mean, that is like a that like the idea of power dynamics that you just brought up there. Like that's so important for us as faculty to be aware of that students may truly not be able to like let somebody know what's going on because they fear retribution or they, you know, there can be very tangible material consequences for like the racism that students experience and, and if they are to like speak up about it. So um, I, I was very conscious of that throughout. And um, you know, what I tried to do first and foremost was like, develop real authentic caring relationships with these students. I mean, I just this morning, like gave one of the participants feedback on a doctoral right application that they're, they're submitting in a couple of days. I still, I like just texted another one who's since graduated and is now in a school, like asking how things were going. Like I have maintained these relationships after the study. They weren't just numbers on a page. Like they're real people who I just care about desperately and like, really want them to see them successful in the field. I want them in schools as PE teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I've sort of followed up, you know, many of them were, were beginning, they were sophomores and juniors. And so I've sort of, you know, kept following up, like making sure, Hey, you're going to graduate. You've got a job. Mm -hmm. You're in this field. How's it going? And it's been amazing to maintain that relationship beyond. I mean, those interviews took place like three years ago now. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, these are some powerful findings. Uh, where do you think we go from here? Like, how do we get better as instructors, but more importantly, as a field for yeah. for Pete? So, obviously, like, no one-size-fits-all approach and no magic cure. I think it needs to be a multi-pronged approach. Um, so, I think, first of all, we need to figure out how to establish Pete as a welcoming and enjoyable space for students of color who want to become PE teachers. So this means, right, engaging in our peak courses from a culturally relevant or responsive perspective. It means troubling whiteness inside our programs, you know, looking at our content, curricula, norms and expectations, and trying to identify how whiteness informs them. 
And we think it means establishing mentors and bridge programs for students of color to have a trusted person to whom they can look for guidance. I think it also means that white, you know, peak um, faculty, you know, we are the vast majority, vast, vast majority of peak faculty. We have an enormous responsibility to consistently, continuously trouble and reflect on our whiteness and how we may have, you know, both upheld and or destabilized whiteness in our praxis. Like this isn't an all or nothing deal. You're not either racist or not racist. It's a spectrum. And, and we move back and forth on this spectrum, although hopefully, you know, sort of aiming for that antively, actively anti-racist side. So this work, it just needs to be ongoing. It needs to be consistent, like a one-time conference session here or there is not enough. P yeah. faculty need to understand what pre-service teachers of color endure at predominantly white institutions and stand up for them when they experience setbacks and work to remove barriers that might prevent their success. Um, and, and I think white P faculty, like the third point of this is that we have a responsibility to help guide white pre-service teachers in examining their own stereotypes and assumptions on race and whiteness. Like this should be part of our core curriculum because it helps white students better understand what teaching in diverse contexts is going to be like. And it further draws in students of color who can really then start to understand their experiences as informed by race and what maybe needs to change. Like our classrooms, our schools are becoming more and more diverse white pre-service PE teachers like are going to be teaching students of color and we need them to be able to do it in culturally responsive ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then finally, I think that this work, I really think it highlights the need to validate and reify the emotional cost, labor and value of race relations in Pete spaces. So that is like, there is emotion to this work. This work and emotion are, are linked and inextricably. And, and to this call for change, both good and bad, we need to allow emotions to be present in Pete versus this sort of unemotional professional approach. And we need to give weight and consciousness to the emotions of navigating race and racialized or white identities. I think that's where, that's the piece for me that has been missing for so long is understanding how emotional this work is and giving space, time and attention to the emotion that is associated with race work. Yeah, and thanks for coming on. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. I think this, you know, talking with you may, makes me think like this is again, a great podcast that I'm going to add to my sociocultural issues in the physical education class. And um, I think it's uh, really interesting, insightful. Uh, the paper's great. Um, it's, a, it's a good award also from you, like a great lecture. And, and I think that hopefully this podcast can kind of, um, you know, just, just make people think a little bit differently and make people reconsider and you talk about questioning your own whiteness and, and the vast majority of Pete scholars, especially in the U.S., are white. So it's yep. it's uh, it's a lot of our our work to to reconsider and take those steps and constantly be doing the work um, as we yeah. kind of for those of you that didn't listen to the Peak Collaboratives over the summer 2020, they're recorded on the podcast. And um, I think one of the frustrations from people who are doing the work 
was at that point that people were asking, okay, what do I need to do? Tell me, yeah. tell me, give me the recipe of what to do. And I know that there's a kind of a struggle there between people who were doing the work, who publish in that area, and those that have never published anything related to race. And there was this kind of push, push and pull of how much do we give and how much of it is the work. And so I know that's a, always been a balance. Uh, and I think, you know, as we're going into now 2022, I, I hope that uh, these issues are are more prevalent and we feel comfortable talking about it. But at the same time, like, you know, I live in Virginia and yeah. I think most people in the U.S. did not know where Loudoun County, Virginia is. But based on all of the stuff about critical race theory and yeah. politicization yeah. of schools and, you know, I think it's unfortunately it's become like like you said, you said the word woke, right? Yeah. Like that was a totally normal <laughs> word to use for a while. And now it's like been politicized and yeah. like, I don't know, like when my daughter was born, somebody gave us woke baby. Like, I think that, I think that was me. <laughs> yeah. So like, so like I look at that book and I'm like, man, this, like this word has been politicized. It's a really good meaning book. But now you look at it and you're like, what does that mean? You know, it's just like, it's so confusing because you feel like you're always behind of using a certain word or, you know, yeah. having to teach PE teachers what critical race theory is and explaining that somebody with a doctorate degree is doing work on it, but it's not being taught in fourth grade. No. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a mess, but I think I, I, I have read recently that like, this is very common, this backlash, right? We had this like summer of racial reckoning and then there's been this intense backlash and mm -hmm. fallout from it. And that mim mimics like past, um, history, past historical patterns, but we, we know that it does push the needle forward. So even as confused as we feel, as terms change, as we see this backlash come forward, we need to sort of stand true to what we know, which is that we like students of color, particularly in our PE programs, they deserve a space where they feel safe and comfortable and valued and respected. And you put that as the center of all that you do and you will do it right. Even mm -hmm. if you make some mistakes like that is your if that is your guide, then you are doing something right. Yeah. And so, you know, you hold that as your compass. And from there, whatever you do, something will come good will come of it. Yeah. Thanks, Mara. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. And and uh, for those of you listening, I'll put the citation to the uh, article that we're discussing today in the comment section. And um, you know, if you if you like what what the podcast is, just uh, I guess I'd ask share it with one or two other people in your in your network. Just pick an episode. Um, that that you enjoyed and and forward it over to them and kind of share share this work so these types of podcasts can be listened to in other other universities and other classes and other professionals out in the field who are teaching uh, health and physical education. So, thanks, Mara. Bye.
you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.